all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a good morning this morning. Uh, a little hot outside. I noticed uh, already around 8.30 or 9, it was about 85 degrees already. It's going to be a hot one out there. Make sure you're being careful. We are here for you today. If you're new to the program, this is the, uh, the production program from MPB Think Radio, where we take your calls during the hour concerning any kind of health issues that, that you might have. Uh, it can be of any age, so it could be you or maybe somebody in your family or uh, a grandchild that you might want to call in about. It could be anything from a new symptom that you're having, a new medication. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you haven't quite gotten a good uh, hold on yet. Uh, we are here to help you get those answers today or point you in the right direction. You can call us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or if you're not able to call, you can always email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, I do want to say, you know, if you're going to call, don't wait till that second hour. Things get a little uh, tight um, during that second hour. We want to give everybody an equal chance to, uh, to address all of their questions that they might have during the hour, but sometimes we get sort of rushed at the end. So I'll would encourage you the best time to call uh, tends to be the first hour. So go ahead and get those calls in quick. Uh, it's always a little bit trepidatious to be that first person, but I'm giving you total permission today to be that number one person uh, to call us this morning. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Well, I had some symptoms this weekend that sort of prompted me to want to get tested for, uh, for COVID. Uh, so I can uh, empathize with everybody else who's had to uh, get tested with the uh, deep nasal swab that feels like a, a biopsy on your brain. Uh, so it's quite uh, uncomfortable when you get it. But whether that well, thankfully it was not COVID positive. There was another uh, uh, issue that was giving me some symptoms. And those have resolved, but uh, just want to let everybody know it's as bad as everybody says it is. Uh, it is uncomfortable. It's very brief. Um, so uh, if you feel like you're having symptoms, don't hesitate to call your physician, uh, or you can check out the Mississippi State Department of Health website, and there are testing locations that are listed there all throughout the state. Uh, not all tests are equal. The best test to get right now, definitively, if you you know if you have the the virus is uh, is a is one that is not the rapid test. Rapid tests are useful in some situations, uh, but are not as accurate as the ones that test for the RNA. That's the genetic sequence um, that uh, encodes the virus. So, 
keep that in mind, but I uh, just want to let y'all know, hey, I'm right there with you and uh, getting tested when I need to. We've got a caller, a couple callers on the line. Let's go to uh, John from Mobile. Good morning, John. Good morning, good morning. I should ask first if you had your coffee yet. Can't take advice <laughs> from someone who doesn't have their coffee. Yes, <laughs> I, I definitely had definitely had my coffee for the day. Caffeinated, I like that. Uh, question about insulin. I've got uh, two insulins that I'm on, a fast-acting and a real-time insulin. <clears throat> to J.O. and uh, Novolog, I think. The question I have for you is, if between major meals I take a snack, some crackers, cheese, or something like that, do I need to take that insulin before each snack? Or the fact that I've dosed myself up for the major meal, does it have any residual effect? That's the question. Yeah. Yeah, so insulin, uh, most people aren't, you know, familiar with the different types of insulin. Uh, you're, 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 sounds like you're right on board with that. So generally there are insulins that are longer acting, and we sometimes we call those basal insulins. There's different types, and different types last for longer. Some of them you just take once a day. Some of them you can take twice a day. Uh, there is an, an expense differential between those. So sometimes depending on what your insurance will pay for, there may be one versus the other. Uh, and you need that. That sort of covers you throughout a 24-hour period with this low level of insulin. And it really mimics what our pancreas does normally uh, in non-diabetic states. The other type of insulin that you mentioned is a quick-acting insulin, and that's something that you would take right before a meal. Normally what happens in our body as we eat, it gets signals down to the pancreas to not only as it produces that that constant level of insulin to uh, help us metabolize glucose or blood sugar uh, and get it to where it needs to be in our tissues. When you eat, that goes up. So there's this little spike that goes up to cover any kind of foods that you're eating. And then that goes down over about two to four hours, depending on the types of foods. So in a from a diabetic standpoint, if you're on insulin, that's what you're trying to mimic. And uh, the question about snacks, most of the time, if you're eating consistently throughout the day and you're taking a, <clears throat> a short or intermediate acting, there's some insulins that sort of bridge that. Uh, it sounds like by what you're taking with the, uh, with the Trajeo and the, and the Novolog, that's probably covering you adequately uh, if you're taking those, you know, the shorter or intermediate acting right before your meals, that's probably going to cover. I, I don't think you would need anything uh, for those snacks. Um, now, you may be familiar with, you know, a, another way to uh, sort of treat insulin that's even tighter control than that uh, is an insulin pump that delivers a constant uh, uh, flow of insulin. It's a little device that fits. It's a small needle that goes in the skin, and then it pumps out insulin continuously and you basically adjust that based on what your blood sugar is and what you're eating. So it takes a lot more sticks to do that. Most people think, well, I can get an insulin pump and it'll be much less work. It's actually more work on the part of the patient to do that. Uh, in those cases, oftentimes, even with snacks, you'll, you'll adjust it. But with the regimen that you have, I don't think that you would need uh, to, uh, to adjust that or add a dose of the shorter acting insulin before a snack. It depends on the snack. If your snack looks more like a meal, then that's probably going to throw it off a good bit. But if it is a true snack, 
um, then that's probably okay. I would discuss that with your physician. They may even want you to consult with a nutritionist and they can help sort of estimate based on what your diet is if you need, you know, an extra dose of insulin or change the dose of the insulin and during different times. So it can get complicated, but sort of mapping that out and being consistent is probably the best the best uh, advice I can give you. One, one follow-up question. Um, can you take the uh, shot through a T-shirt? Do you have to... Uh, that, that's that's always problematic with me trying to find a convenient place to stick myself, especially if you're in public. Um, is it possible to take the shot through the clothing or yes. do, you to, do you need to expose the skin before uh, you take the shot? Yeah, you, you'd need to expose it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, infections always one, even though those needles are small, all of us, we've got bacteria, even if you're, you shower off very quickly, you repopulate that bacteria on the skin. You can't get it all off even with a shower. Um, uh, so making sure that skin is cleansed really good just with an alcohol prep is recommended to try to decrease the risk of infection at that site that you're injecting. And also if you inject through something, there's all those needles, even though they're small, they're core needles, you can actually get a piece of that clothing that gets injected into the skin uh, so it's not recommended to do that through, through clothing. That'd be a great mechanism, you know, to do something like you see in Star Trek where they could just, uh, go through anything basically and give you medications, but not really recommended with injections like that. I know it's hard to get, you know, find a, a spot to do that depending on what you're wearing and everything, but it's, it's generally not recommended that you do that through clothing. There you are throwing common sense at me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> well, John, thank you for calling, and uh, stay safe out there in Mobile. All right, we're going to go to our second caller, John again, but different John from Vicksburg. Good morning, John. Good morning, doctor. My problem is I have chronic unexplained nausea, and I've been fighting that problem for about a year. But what I'm calling about is whenever I take a NSAID or opiate for severe low back pain, my stomach gets upset just like when I eat food or anything else. But I have tried, I had the compound pharmacies, at least my doctor did, tried compound pharmacies and made up a uh, suppository. I tried it. It still made me nauseated. What causes a person to get sick from uh, yeah. a, a suppository? Yeah, was a suppository, um, was that um, something like the NSAIDs? Yes, it was an Endosin. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so here's why. So NSAIDs, uh, particularly if you take them by mouth, they can irritate your stomach, and there's two reasons for that. Any medication, actually, that you take by mouth has the potential to do that, to irritate the stomach, just because it can cause changes in that normal gastric uh, juices that help break down food. Sometimes that works better with taking it with food to sort of offload that a little bit, and sometimes it doesn't. NSAIDs in particular, the way they work, they're non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. John, I know what, you know what this is, but for everybody else, it's, those are things like Advil or Motrin or Ibuprofen, Aleve. Uh, those are all NSAIDs, and they work, uh, they're not steroids, but they work in an anti-inflammatory fashion by changing something called prostaglandins. 
And prostaglandins are protective uh, substances in our body. Uh, although they cause inflammation, they help protect certain tissues. And one of those tissues is the lining of the stomach. So when you take an NSAID, if you receive an NSAID as a suppository or you swallow a pill or a liquid, all of those are going to be absorbed in the body. And once they get into the circulation, they're going to decrease prostaglandin synthesis everywhere. And even if it doesn't get in your stomach, you're still, it's still in your bloodstream and that's going to affect those prostaglandins in your stomach. So that's why you, you described it very nicely. You know, Indocin is one of those two that can do the same kind of thing, no matter which, you know, which method you, uh, you take it. So it's not, it doesn't have to be something that passes through your stomach. As long as you're absorbing that in your body, that's what's going to happen. Uh, for low back pain, there may be some other alternatives. I don't know if you've tried it. A uh, pain management clinic might be a good choice for you, uh, either to locally uh, look at different things like injections. There's some other medications like, that, are, uh, that, that aren't NSAIDs that can work uh, through the skin over the area, like lidocaine uh, patches or gels can sometimes uh, be very beneficial. And uh, Voltaren, which is an NSAID, but if you, if you do it through the skin, can actually, um, over the area where you're having problems, there's not a whole lot of systemic uh, absorption from that. So it, those are all things you might want to try. Again, a pain specialist is probably the best person to talk about for that. But that's a common side effect. And some people just have the ho most horrendous time with NSAIDs and having either gastritis or irritation of the stomach lining or nausea with that. So sounds like that's what's happening to you and uh there may be some other reasons to have nausea certainly that you don't want to just land on one but it sounds like that's definitely contributing to it i have tried all of the things you just mentioned how effective is a spinal cord stimulator are they very effective for low back pain? Uh, are you are you talking about the direct stimulator or like the tens unit no the direct the one that's yeah, surgically implanted. It's, right, I, and I don't have all the data on that because I'm not a not a spinal surgeon. That's the the best person to talk to about that and just say, hey, what is the, you know, what's the success rate? The few patients okay. that I've had that have had that, it's sort of fifty fifty, but that's a very low number of patients in my experience. The, the okay. spinal surgeons are the ones you want to talk to about that. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you're a parent on the go, but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning. 
answering your calls or questions about any kind of health issue that you might have, the number to call this morning is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And uh, sometimes you're not able to call. You may be involved with something else, and you may want to send an email in. You don't have to do that during the program. You can send an email later. Uh, you can send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to share those unless you tell us not to uh, with um, with our larger audience. Um, uh, we just think uh, a lot of those questions are really good. Actually, most of them are really good as far as emails go. Um, and we like to uh, to share those with our audience. So send those in. We'll try to get back to you personally as quickly as we can. And if you missed a program or a portion of a program, maybe you came in a little late on a discussion and wanted to hear the entire entirety of the uh, of the call, uh, you can always go to mpbonline.org and search for Southern Remedy. We do archive our programs, give us about 24 hours to do that. Uh, but if you want to check that out on past programs, you can certainly do that. All right, we're going to go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question. I, I get all my information off Facebook since I'm socially isolated out here, but uh, I read something that it, it, it seems that people with Epstein-Barr syndrome or who have had Epstein-Barr are more prone to get COVID. So for some reason, there's some connection there. What do you think about that? So I haven't seen that one in particular, but there's a lot of generally when you have a new disease like this, um, there are a lot of the way that information gets to the point where you can say, okay, these are things that cause this is sort of a stepwise process. The first thing is uh, a physician or group of physicians will notice certain things. Like they may, may noticed that, uh, that, you know, Epstein-Barr patients had had uh, previous episodes of that, um, th that they, um, they were more at risk for COVID. Um, then from there, that gets published in the literature, it gets picked up, and then you do what's called a cohort study where you look in the past at a larger number of patients who've had this to see if those anecdotes that you saw in your individual patients, if that holds up. And um, if, if that data is, is supportive, depending on what you're looking at, it may progress towards something like a randomized controlled trial. Now for associations, you can't really do that. So you have to look at large numbers of people to say, yeah, this actually happened. So another way to think about this from a statistics standpoint is if if I have a if I have a quarter and I um, toss the quarter up in the air and call, you know, just see how many times it lands on heads or tails. Every time I throw it up, it's a 50 50 chance. But just by the way things fall, I might have seven out of 10 times that it lands on heads. So I may say, well, every time I throw this quarter up. 70% of the time it's going to be on heads. So there's something about the heads that's making it come up that way. Unless you do that hundreds and hundreds of times with across multiple different settings, you can't really definitively say that. So it's the same kind of thing. You know, I have my own patients that I see and my, I may notice that a lot more of my patients may have had uh, EBV or Epstein-Barr virus infections. It's a very common virus. Uh, it, it, you know, spreads primarily through saliva. It can, uh, it's the virus that causes mono or mononucleosis, 
Uh, so it's very common. Younger individuals can get that. I haven't seen where that's been an association um, with or a risk factor. I think it's probably too premature to say it's a risk factor. You know, we've had a lot of that evidence pop up. I think we mentioned last week, uh, you know, type A blood type initially, they, a lot of people saw more patients that had that type of blood and they thought, well, that may be a risk factor. Turns out when we look at larger number of people, and again, it's that same process that I described earlier, that it's not that way. And sometimes you have to be careful. You know, the way news travels these days, and you mentioned Facebook, it's so quick. Sometimes the, the messaging outstrips the science and the true data. So there's a mad rush for people to, uh, when they see things, to, to get that out there. But you need to have the patience to really go through those steps. Because if you don't, you're going to make mistakes. The science really will bear out in the end. And it's the same reason why we change things over time. We may have really good reasons why one medication might work in a patient. But until you actually study that meticulously, and really without any kind of bias, it's easy for me to have my own favorite treatments for my patients. But if I don't have the science to back that up, that really is looking at the data and not any kind of bias that I might have personally, then it's really not the best treatment for that patient. So that's why it's very important to do these, these studies, these trials. It is slow, it is methodical work, but it's really how we move science forward and if you don't do that, sometimes we make mistakes. So I haven't seen that. I'm going to look that up, Sue. That's uh, something else for me to look at. I, I've got my little COVID uh, file on the side that I'm, I'm keeping up with. And from time to time, we have, uh, there's a couple of journals that will do sort of like an update on the, the literature and uh, not just on treatment, but on the risk factors and those kinds of things. So that's good to bring up, though, and uh, but I wouldn't, uh, if, if you had EBV or mononucleosis in the past. I, I've heard that 80% of the population has had EBV virus or. Yeah, and that's the other thing to keep in mind, too, because it's so prevalent in the, in the background population, it's sort of hard to say that's a risk factor. Now, if it was something that happened, you know, in 1% of the population and you found a lot of people who had COVID uh, that they... Uh, that they, you know, had that. The other thing to keep in mind is as far as having COVID, as far as the transmissibility, it's pretty, it's not too particular. Now, the symptoms that you get are going to be totally different. Uh, and that's the key, key to this. That's what, one of the things that makes it so dangerous is younger people, healthy people, most of them, they're going to get it, but they may have no symptoms or very mild symptoms but they can transmit that very easily from person to person. The transmissible rate for this, you know, with close contact is anywhere from 75 to 80%. That's pretty high for a virus. And uh, when you look at that, I mean, you really can't say that somebody, you know, with EBV that, as you said, occurs anywhere from 10 to 15% in the population has had that. Can't really say that's a risk factor, but that's, it's always, always good the other part of science is you're always should be open to new things or things that you were considering, you know, just because you, you, you reach a dead end, that's not a failure. You know, look at Edison and the light bulb, how many times, how many filaments did he go th uh, through before he found the right one? And when asked about that, he said, you know, I just haven't found the right one yet. And I know which ones don't work. So that's the same kind of mindset we need to have about uh, COVID. That's the way we're going to defeat it. 
so we need to um, we need to have that kind of mindset. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Got some good ones this morning. Keep them coming. Uh, lots of uh, time to talk about your uh, questions that you might have about your health care or someone else near and dear to you. You can call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to uh, Tim in Pearl. Good morning, Tim. Uh, good morning. Um, Thanks for calling. Okay, I've. Uh, I injured my back a couple of times to the point that I had trouble walking and, you know, it, it hurt pretty severely, but the last year or so I've got a minor pain. And if I can put my hand on it, it's almost around my side at the base of my ribs toward my back. Um, I've been to the doctor a couple of times and he's treated me with anti-inflammatories and, of, you know, muscle relaxers, and it seems to help for a short time. The pain doesn't really bother me throughout the day, but I wake up almost every morning with it hurting in this area, and if I lay down on my side or my back, I can feel the pain, but it's very minor, um, and it doesn't seem to be going away with the general practitioner's treatment is I guess I'm asking, should I go to a specialist? And if so, what kind of specialist should I see? Yeah, Tim, I, I think you probably need to step it up a little bit more. Let me ask you one question, though. Uh, did you do any physical therapy during that time? I did. Okay. Both, uh, both so that, would, that would have been the only other thing I would mention because it has been shown to be very beneficial, particularly if it's milder pain that's just really sticking with you at certain times of the day or night. Um, I think it probably is time to see somebody, whether or not you need surgery, you know, that's that's sort of an individual decision. Most low back surgeries can be uh, treated chronically without surgery. And if you, if you leave it with the minimally invasive surgeries, if you're not having neurologic impairment to the point where uh, it's affecting your walking, uh, you know, with, with muscle tone, those kinds of things. And there's objective ways to look at that. Most people don't need surgery for that. 
but I still think you probably should see an orthopedic surgeon or a spinal surgeon. So uh, sometimes those are a little bit different. A neurosurgeon sometimes is doing the same thing or an orthopedic surgeon. Um, uh, you know, my go-to here, there's a couple of orthopedic surgeons and actually uh, their team can really take a, a team approach to things. They may recommend you go to a pain clinic and they can do some things. There's a lot of other things you can do other than what, what you've already had that aren't surgical related. So there may be some uh, e-stem uh, mechanisms that they can use on the back. Uh, I mentioned a lot of derm uh, as, a, as a topical agent that sometimes can help, particularly at night um, and in early morning. Uh, and there may be some a couple other things that they can do. Some people, you know, go to uh, the chiropractic route. I think that works for some people. I've seen some good improvement. Some people, some people it doesn't. Uh, acupuncture is something else that a lot of people have looked at for chronic pain, and it's sort of, you know, 50-50 on that, too. But the first person I would want to go see is an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, in somebody in particular, the way orthopedics is these days, there's really, a, unless you're way out, you know, usually Pearl around the Jackson area, you should have a lot of choices uh, somebody who specializes in the back itself. So, uh, but an orthopedic surgeon is probably the next step for you to at least get a second look. That doesn't mean you're, you're committed to surgery, but they can sort of look at, at what, what's going on, maybe even do some imaging there to sort of see if it's impacting any of the nerves. Thank you. All right. Good luck to you, Tim. Let's go to Alex in McGee. Good morning, Alex. Um, I have Morning, a Alex. quick question. Yeah, hey, I, I sure. just had a, a quick, quick, easy question. I'll, uh, I'll get off. We don't have to have a full conversation if you don't want to. But um, my wife and I got interested in blood types uh, a while back. Uh, we uh, about six or eight years ago, in fact, we ordered some uh, blood um, test cards, like Eldon cards, from a laboratory, so you could figure out what your blood type is. Uh huh. Are you familiar? Okay, so we we did that, yep. and we did our we did our blood test, and we were like, okay, this is what we are, and we ordered another set just to make sure, and they came back again, the same exact thing. And my question is, she's negative, Rh negative, and I started doing a lot of research over the last couple of years, and even in the last couple of months, I, I stumbled upon um, a bunch of things saying that negative Rh negative people blood type have a hard time um, acquiring any viruses whatsoever. Um, much less COVID, like something happens to where their immune system goes into like warp drive when they detect any viruses. And uh, from what I understand, RH negative people cannot uh, get viruses. I, that's, I've read every single thing I can possibly read. I've gone, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages for months trying to figure this stuff out. And I can't really, I can't really get uh, definitive. It starts getting extremely complicated, you know. Yeah, so, so RH is one of those things. Most people are, you know, familiar with the ABO types, uh, group A, uh, B, AB, and O. Uh, the RH, negativity or positivity, is something that usually comes up with pregnancy. Um, you know, there is a situation where we give something called Rogam to women who are RH negative, where the father is RH positive. So there, there are some situations where you can have autoimmune uh, phenomenon, uh, it might uh, uh, affect the uh, uh, developing baby's um, um, uh, blood. Um, so you do have to be careful with that. As far as like um, risk of viruses, now that's not something, now I don't know what's out there and what you're reading, but 
you know, I've taken immunology twice now, once in college, once in medical school, and then followed up with that, and then several hematology rotations in my training. I'm not aware, especially, I would not say that they can't get any kind of virus. Now, everybody's immune system is a little bit different, um, and, you know, some people might, uh, might be more uh, susceptible to different things. Um, now, there is a little bit of resistance that you can have, again, because of these are really antigens on the blood cells, and it's really tied to our immune system. So there is a lot of leeway with that, but you can't really say that they can't get those. They are a little bit, there's a little bit of evidence saying they're resistant to that. Um, and then there's also, you know, some, if you look even further, because it's so much tied to the immune system, uh, with the antigens on our blood cells, there's also some associations with either a, a lesser risk when you talk about Rh negative with some of the autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So, but you can't totally say that. So if you're Rh negative, you can't really have a cavalier, uh, you know, stance about that. They may there may be a little bit of protection. Now it's not like their immune system is in overdrive. It has to do with how that immune system reacts to the different antigens on our cells. So really the immune system is about recognizing our cells versus what is foreign to us. And that's exactly the same reason why in an RH negative female who's pregnant, you have to give Rogam to, to prevent that autoimmune response to an RH positive baby um, because of that, that immune response to those antigens. So there's a little bit of that. I wouldn't say across the board that you can't get viruses um, that's, you know, that's, that's not the, really where the science is, but there is a pattern there. You're right. There is a pattern that says that there's a little bit more, um, protection, if you want to say that, or at least a, a, a bend toward not getting some of those viral, uh, viral diseases. And it also, it runs over to other things too, like heart diseases, respiratory diseases. It's not just something that you would catch oh, wow. for a virus. So it, okay. it's very well, interesting. Uh, if you're interested in reading more about that, also look up HLA uh, haplotypes and risk factors there. It's really fascinating in immunology, just the differences in those. They're not predictive. It's not something that you can get like, it's sort of like DNA testing these days. Everybody wants to get their DNA tested and it can predict everything. It really doesn't work that way. Um, uh, only about 20% of that's predictive and the other 80% is really environmental. But it is fascinating, you know, when you look at all the different antigenic variations in our body, not just with blood types, but other things. But HLA haplotypes, that can, uh, that's some other stuff to look up. Okay, thank you, doctor. I appreciate it. I'll uh, move on and give somebody else a turn. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, good info there about that. Uh, somebody asked me about, uh, I think it was last week, about masks, about making those, in, uh, or maybe two weeks ago. And a little bit more data on that. Actually, there was a study looking at just how effective masks are over time. You know, N95s are sort of the standard with healthcare workers, particularly if they're taking care of COVID patients. That's also included uh, a lot of other personal protective equipment. Um, the, the 95 number really comes at uh, what is uh, the amount of uh, particles that are three microns, uh, that's really, really small, that is getting filtered out through that material. And uh, 95 is 95% of those were filtered out. So N95 mask would do that. A, a key component of that is the fit of it, though. So you really don't want any kind of, um, 
any kind of space between the sides of that mask and your face. So even before COVID uh, in the hospital, we're all fitted for these if we took care of patients uh, who have, for instance, TB. Uh, and N95 mask is sort of the standard in some of those uh, uh, situations where we have airborne uh, or aerosolized particles that we want to uh, protect ourselves, protect from. Uh, but those have to be fitted. So there's different sizes. There's different ways. If you have a, a beard or even a goatee, that has to uh, be taken into effect. There's a recent study that looked at this, and N95s are, again, very, uh, very useful, very good at filtering all those out if they're fitted correctly. That goes down if they're too small or if they're sort of hanging on the face and not, uh, not fitted there. And then N95 masks that are out of date actually were pretty effective as long as they weren't in direct sunlight for up to 11 years past their expiration date. And then in some instances, N95 masks are being sterilized using different techniques. Uh, now, steam sterilization, it sort of degrades the material. It's not as useful with most N95 masks. Um, there are a couple of other ways to do it with ethylene oxide and hydrogen peroxide. Those are pretty good, and actually it, it retains its, um, its protection. As far as cloth masks go, it seems that if you have two or three layers to that, it's more, much more protective. <clears throat> that makes sense just because you've got more of a barrier there for different particles. Certainly not going to be as much as those N95 masks because there's also an electrostatic uh, layer in there that sort of catches those particles in that mask. But uh, if you have that, some people even make masks that you can put like a filter, like even a coffee filter there. Uh, so um, those are a little bit better. Uh, and certainly for most situations where you're not actively going into a patient's room who has COVID uh, in the community, those are fine. Uh, interestingly enough, the ties uh, are much better than the elastic bands that fit around your ears. And again, it's because of the fit. So if you think about that, the ties uh, fit closer to your face. And if you're wearing a mask and you want to improve that, you know, having that, that metal band across the top of it that's moldable so that it can fit over the bridge of your nose snugly and the upper part of your cheek. And then, uh, you know, if you want to get those ties, it's a little bit more of a hassle to do that. It's easier to put those things around your ears. But, but uh, the ties actually are more comfortable if you're going to be wearing it for a long period of time. And the fit's much, much better. So a little bit of data there. They are testing those to see which ones are better. Not every N95 is the same. You can actually go online to uh, the NIOSH website, actually, has some good testing of various types of N95 masks, but not all of them are the same. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, uh, answering your questions questions about any kind of health issue that you might be having this morning, giving you a little bit of information there too. Um, venous stasis disease, what is that? So um, I had a patient recently that uh, had some questions about his lower legs and um, had some discoloration there that was sort of purplish that they had noticed over time that was worse. No real pain there. They also noticed that they had some a uh, little bit of swelling around the area they got better when they raised their legs up or they were sleeping at night and then worsened throughout the day. So venous stasis disease, you know, we have two big, uh, big systems to move blood through our body, or really three. We have arteries, so they take blood from our heart to the rest of the body. We have veins that bring it back to the heart and then connecting those two are the capillaries and, and lower caliber vessels uh, to really get everything down to the tissue level. So in, in a person who has venous stasis disease, basically those veins, they don't have, after, uh, after all that blood flows through the arterial system and then in the capillaries, there's not much pressure to get it back up to the heart. So the way the body does this in veins, which are very thin walled, uh, if you look at the veins in your hands or you know, the surface veins, pretty easy to compress versus an artery, which has a muscular wall. And the way they do that is they have valves in, in them and particularly the deeper veins, which are in between large muscle groups, as you move around throughout the day, that sort of pumps things uh, back to the heart. Uh, sometimes when you lay down at night, that makes it a whole lot easier just because you're not working against gravity in the lower extremities. But as we get older, we lose a lot of those, uh, those valves don't work as well in the veins and blood can pool in the lower extremities. Now, a common misconception is this is not that you have uh, poor, um, you don't have poor circulation. That usually means that you have, um, that you have some problems with the arteries, uh, in your, in your lower extremities. So one of the things that your physician will always want to do is look at the arterial flow. If they can't do that on exam very well, uh, there's a couple of ways you can do that, uh, on exam. If they can't do that, they may order a test called a lower extremity Doppler, and that, che uh, that checks for the blood flow to those lower extremities. But the venous stasis disease can be a little bit painful in some situations, but basically when that blood pools in your lower extremities for a long period of time, the hemosiderin, which is a breakdown product of hemoglobin, can get deposited in the skin itself and it can sort of stain it permanently. And sometimes this looks sort of bronzish in color. Sometimes it's sort of purplish. Uh, or, or even dark brown. It tends to be on the front part of the shins and the ankles. So something to keep in mind. Uh, you do want to get checked out if you have that, just so that you uh, make sure that you don't have any other problems. A lot of good treatments for that. A lot of wraps, a lot of compression hose. It can help with that over time. Let's go to Gail in Biloxi. Good morning, Gail. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask you, I heard you talking about masks. And I was wondering if you could address something that I have noticed. Since they've made the mandatory mask orders, a lot of people are wearing their masks just over their mouth and not over their nose. And I was wondering if you could address that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've seen that myself. Um, 
a mask only works if you wear it correctly. Uh, it's just like anything. If I took a hammer and I tried to nail a hand with a, ha a, a nail in a board with a hammer, turned around backwards and tried to use the claw to do that, it wouldn't work too well. So a mask is a tool that's used to protect us and others from certain things, and you have to wear it correctly. I'll tell you how important this is. When I was a med student, when I was a third year med student and I had my first rotation through surgery, the first thing that they did the first day is they took us down to surgery and the, uh, the circulation nurse there taught us how to put on all this equipment, including a mask. Now that may seem funny and some people may say, well, anybody can put on a mask. No, you can't. You have to do it correctly. It's just like that hammer. It may be intuitive for some people, but if you don't do it correctly, you, it's not going to uh, be of any use to you. So everybody who's wearing a mask just over their mouth, guess what? You breathe through your nose uh, in and out. So it's, it's not really protecting you uh, from spreading that virus uh, or anything else if you just have it over your mouth. If you go into any OR situation or people going in and out of a patient's room with a mask on, uh, you're not going to see anybody with it just over their mouth. And if they do that, they're not going to wear it that way long enough. So if you're going to do that, we need to do it correctly. So I'm glad, Gail, you brought that up. Also, fit loosely fitted masks, not much help either. It needs to be fitted firmly around the face. Uh, you're not, I, I wear one uh, sometimes eight hours a day with, uh, you know, a break in between lunch. I guarantee you, you are not going to pass out with that. It's not going to impede your oxygen delivery or anything like that. So it's that's something that's very important. So thanks for bringing that up, Gail. Everybody who's wearing a mask, please do that appropriately and safely. Um, uh, just like any other tool, though, and uh, I, had, I saw a great quote, you know, it is a nuisance to do that. I mean, I agree with that. Um, sometimes, particularly in Mississippi, if you're wearing it in situations that are hotter, you certainly, uh, it's it's going to have, just because of the increased humidity, it's going to feel hotter when you wear that. Um, I get that. I'm wearing one when I'm out. I'm wearing one if I'm in, you know, crowds or, or around other people, uh, unless I'm by myself exercising somewhere or uh, more than about 10 feet from somebody. Uh, so, we all need to do that, uh, but one thing to keep in mind, you know, a small change in a loss of freedom will gain us big freedoms down the road if we all do this together. This is a chance that I think as Mississippians, as Americans, we can come together and do this in the same kind of way that, you know, our grandparents did this in World War II in different ways and gave up a lot of things. Certainly, if you look at history, there's a lot of ways that we did this and we're very successful that's the kind of thing that we all need to come together on right now. So I encourage everybody to do that. Certainly a lot of, uh, you know, politics in this, unfortunately, I think it's been hijacked. Uh, but, you know, can you think of anything else that would be simpler to do uh, than put on a mask to protect somebody else? And the data is very clear on that with cutting down transmission rates of this virus. So I want to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody feels that way. Don't think about something that you have to do. It's something that you do to protect other people. That's what I do every day. Uh, I look for that mask in my car and I look for that mask at work to try to protect other people. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media 